0: please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, which is in Genesis 34. This is a violent and dark section of the Bible and the story of God's people. We're continuing, though, in the book of Genesis, because Genesis forms and shapes God's people for the work of mission. They are to learn the values of the kingdom amongst different kingdoms, and how they are to live, and How are they to go about and influence others as well? And so here we are in Genesis 34. I will skip verses 1 through 4, but I will talk about them as well. It is part of the preaching of God's word. So now, verse 5 Jacob heard that he, Shechem, had defiled his daughter, Gina. But his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob was silent until they came. And Hamar, the father of Sechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son, Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say, I will give. Ask me for a great bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me, the young woman, to be my wife. The sons of Jacob, answered Shechem and his father Hamar, deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Gina. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sisters to the one who is uncircumcised, for, and that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, and you will become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughter to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we'll take our daughter and we'll be gone. Their words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of the city, saying, Hey, uh, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become uh, one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us and all who went out of the gate of this city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords. and came against the city, while it felt secure, and killed all the males. They killed Hamar, and his son Shechem with a sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house, and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and defiled the city, because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, and all their little ones, and their wives, and all that was in the houses, they captured and defiled. And when Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink of the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the paradise. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Every winter in our house, There comes a time when we break out the Burl Ives Classics of Christmas. There lies Frosty the Snowman. Santa is coming to town. Frosty, too, which is a little weird. And then there is our favorite, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Rudolph is unlike everybody else, and he lives in a community where you have to perform to fit in. You can't buck against the trend. You, can't, you have to be normal. And unfortunately, Rudolph is a bit of a misfit. He makes friends with another misfit named Hermie. Hermie is a misfit because he does not want to make toys. Hermie wants to be a dentist. And along their way, and journey out of town from this weird world in which they are pressured to be something that they are not, that they are pressured by the values of this community, they leave that place and run into a man named Yukon Cornelius. And Yukon Cornelius is a bit of a mountaineering man with a giant beard, and he's just weird, okay? He is the weirdest person in the entire story. And they go to an island where they find some strange toys. The island of misfit toys. They don't fit in with the values of the world. They are strange. So strange even that um, there is a a bird that swims in in a, uh, a bowl that's really weird. A train that has square wheels. And a pistol that shoots jam. And I, I don't even know what to do with a pistol that shoots jam. That's kind of cool. It, this would be better than shooting bullets, especially if you're working for kids. And I give that toy to my kids, you know, then they could feed each other. Anyway. But anyway, so they're a bunch of misfits, and they sing a song, I know the song, but I am not going to sing it to spare you. You see, that's the thing about all of us. In some strange way, we've all felt alienated in one way or another. And the way that we feel most deeply alienated at times is definitely sexually. You see, this world has values and a way of doing things that buck up and are different from the ways of God's kingdom. And this torturous back and forth, this tension that we feel causes a lot of shame in us. So much so that a lot of us quietly feel like a misfit that we don't belong in this world. That we don't even belong in the church. So we need to get out. Here's the scary thing, grace and peace. Every person to the left of you and to the right of you, in some way, is a sexual misfit. Either we've been the perpetrators or we've been perpetrated against. Sometimes both. We all feel this alienation. And we all wonder, why do I feel damaged? Why am I so afraid of letting people know what has gone on? Why am I so afraid at times to close the curtains so that no one sees what I'm seeing on the computer? Why do I have to hide? And then we wonder and we hope and we scream out, what can make me better? And the normal value of the world is, you know what's going to make you better? is if you... Get it together, man. If you work really hard, that's what we think our redemption is. Rather, our redemption is the person of Jesus Christ coming to take our shame and knowing you deeply and still loving you. You see, what we have in our text is two ways of doing things: we have Hamar and Shechem's world. This world of the Hyrbites, they are called. They are Canaanites. People of the land, and their way of doing things will push up against the normal values of God's kingdom. Normal values of God's kingdom. And it talks about this tension. And it is showing this tension how the values of the world can expose and damage God's kingdom people. You see, it demonstrates through this problematic place, but this is a dark, dark episode in the life of Israel. Jacob is not who he needs to be. He is messed up, and he'll be exposed here. It is meant to shine a light on the wickedness of the place, the wickedness of the values, how terrible, how awful their way of seeing the world was, these Canaanites and how this competing story corrupts and how heinous it is, and how it can corrupt God's people even. The Canaanites live with an opposing vision for life than God's people. God's people, they were to be true witnesses to God's love, His never-ending, always-and-forever love that never quits on you. And the belief that when you get that on the heart, it transforms the way you live in the world. Here, though, the Canaanites are living in a different way, and it will expose and it will manipulate, and it will mess up God's people. They are to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. But here, the influence of the competing nation, the competing kingdom, will damage God's witness and the witness of His people. In our current world, God's people, His church, is to image them into this world. And we're to do it by our message and by our living. But there's competing ways of life in this world, is there not? Go ahead sometimes, not right now, flip to Twitter and you'll see a bunch of different competing views. Watch MTV. I don't even know if MTV plays music videos anymore, but you know, like, someone's all like, watch MTV, are like, oh, You know? Because as if I just, like, showed them some kind of graphic photo or something like that. Ugh, MTV! Um, you see, this world isn't, like, much different than the Canaanite world. There are so many patterns that reside even in the Christian person. This is what Paul in the New Testament will talk about, our flesh. They're the powerful habits of sin that still reside in our person. And they compete with God's new way, new creation, and new living. So this episode demonstrates that we can be harmed by the ways of the world and their visions, and that we can also be perpetrators and we can carry it out. We can be damaged by the world that we live in because we are influenced and shaped by the place that we live in. Let me put it this way. If you spend more time on Twitter than you do worshiping the God who loves you, if that's the story and narrative of your life, you will find it very hard to live a godly life. Instead, of loving and caring for people, you will shout at them and scold them as if they were some weird Twitter face out there in the universe. You see, we are called to be citizens of, uh, of more like the citizens of God's kingdom than the world's kingdom. And so with that in mind, we have to answer a couple of questions. How in the world have we become damaged and how can we be redeemed? How have we become damaged and how can we be redeemed? So at this point, when we talk about how we have been damaged, the listeners understand that they are in close proximity to a people who are dangerous to the Midian. Deuteronomy 9.5 tells us that it is because of the wickedness of the Canaanites that Israel will dispossess the Canaanites of the land, and they will possess it. So what kind of wicked things? Like, how bad can these people be? You know, not like Dennis Rodman as bad as I can be, but like, this is like, how bad can they be? You know, I don't even know if y'all have known Dennis Rodman. So that's weird. I don't know why I said that. That was the first book I ever read in high school. It was bad as I want to be. Anyway, so let you know where I'm from. Um, and so, what kind of things were they doing? For all indications, there were things like child sacrifice going on. They were sacrificing children to idols who had a belly, burning, and arms out there uh, extended like this. And they would put the child, children on there to be consumed by fire. I don't know. Oh, say, thing that sounds pretty wicked. More than that, they had temple prostitution. They had unfair economic deals that exposed the land and used the land every day of the week, and they did not care. They believed it belonged to them, they believed that everything was for their own good. And so these are people of different religious practices that informed, which, which was the informing, shape, shaping thing in their, in their lives. And the narrator telling the audience, you need to keep away from those people. You're the ones who need to influence them, not them influence you. It does not mean that you don't hang out with them. It does not mean that you do not uh, go and chill with them at the lunch line. But rather watch the influence that they have on you. And you need to be the ones who are influenced them toward goodness. But instead, we see through Jacob like non his voiceless actions and his silence, his complicity in the actions of the Canaanites. More than that, we see that there's no mention of God in this narrative. It is a godless place. The ethics of the place is, is already pointing to you that this is not a good way to be. And so, we see that there's prostitution when it mentions that there are ladies of the land. she went out to go see the ladies, the women of the land, it says. So let's think about our world today. Is our culture any better? Where are the damaging causes and effects of our world? I would contend that our world and our culture is hypersexualized and in some ways has damaged you and me, have made us misfits. And we feel it every time that we need to hide and shame from something about our sexual past and history. We feel damaged. We feel violated. And maybe we violated other people. So your hypertextualization is this, it always exploits and damages people. It looks at people as nothing but objects for our pleasure. The perpetrators are people who are products of the system of hurt, and they are not excused though because they are products of it. They make choices. You and I make choices to hurt other people. There's women of the land. We see this, and that she goes out to see them. Dina goes to see them. Now, let me say this, okay? Let me just stop here because there's a problem with victim blaming. Some people will say, oh, she's in a place that she shouldn't have been. If her skirt wasn't so short, it wouldn't have been a problem. As if somehow Sekham is just an animal or a robot. Like you do the equation, well, if he does this, then Sekham will do this. No, Sekham is a person, and he violated a person made in the image of God. And there needs to be justice for something like this can't cover it up. You think about our world today, are we any better? Uh, Just this last week, Netflix came under huge fire because of a French film called Cuties, which sexualized and objectified 11-year-old girls. It's disgusting. There is something wrong with the film. More than that, they also have another film on there talking about high school girls who are private investigators, and then they are just, just living their best sexual lives now. It is absurd that a teenager would be championed to do this, and that they would become objects for the eye, to become eye candy for deviant people. That is wrong, and we need to be people who call a spade a spade. The porn industry is a billion-dollar industry. Sexual revolution. Abortion is readily available. Children are reduced to to variables of just the pain, pleasure, calculus. Think about our marketing in this world. Drive this car and all the pretty ladies will turn their heads. What? I'm all about fuel economy. I don't know. That's weird. But anyway. But that's the way we work. And imagine how this affects you, how it has affected you, how it has affected young men and women throughout the years, years and years of this being pounded into your head. Think about sex and self-expression nowadays. It is the belief that you can't be your true self without sexually expressing yourself. And how did we get here? and the disbelief. Well, first off, we divorce sex from marriage. No longer did you have to be married in order to enjoy this. In fact, that is just passe, and that is old. We divorce that, and so sex is no longer this powerful thing within marriage to commit one to the other, each for the other for the glory of God, or rather it was become you for me. You become my object of pleasure. So you can get that out elsewhere, they believe. You know, it is as if Ben Parker is in our head, the g- uncle of Peter Parker, saying, you know, sex is a, is, is, is a great responsibility, but with great responsibility... With great power comes great responsibility, he says. With great power comes great responsibility. Why? Because sex is so powerful. It needs to be protected. And we need to be made responsible by these rules, and that's why we have marriage. If we think also, then, about things, the way we divorce sex from having children. We've done that through this readily available uh, contraception and abortion. We divorced it. And then we conflated our sexuality to our identity. That's who you truly are. Therefore, you need to live it. (laughs) Man, how demeaning is it for you to be reduced to your sexuality? Has anyone ever thought about that? That's not a good place to be. More than that, we live in a consumeristic age which makes people into property and has just millions of casualties in this world by making them objects. It is dehumanizing. No longer are you a person made in the image of God, but you are an object for someone's satisfaction and for gratification. Sexual desire is no longer for intimacy, but it is reduced to appetite. And so what is the way forward here? Is it for me to educate you and to get you guys together and like, hey, this is the way you need to think? No. The the way forward is actually a change of heart. You see, if it was just education, you know, if we were just brains on sticks, then you could go home. I gave you the information, you know, like sex outside of marriage is bad. Cool, check. And then you could live, you know, a, a normal life. But we're not brains on sticks. We have hearts. We have wants. We have desires that are good and need to be pointed in the right direction. And so does that James K. Smith, the philosopher, He says, you know, speaking only to the mind is like pouring water on the head while there's a fire in the heart. The goal, then, is to recapture the imagination in the heart of people, not just education, but shaping love. And how how are we most safe? And it is at the foot of the cross, knowing that you are wanted, you are loved, you are desirable, not because of what you offer sexually as an object, but because you are made in the image of God, and you are redeemable by the One who can redeem, because you are loved by Him. And nothing in heaven and on earth, not even earth itself, could separate you from His love. And when we start to get that down in the heart, that's when we have change. But what are the results of this hypersexualized world? Think about it. Dana is dehumanizing shame. We A number of people will victim blame her and say, well, if she will give this, they reduce her down to a variable. And then we see Sheckham going back and saying, oh, I can basically buy her. I desire her, I can buy her. Reducing her down. More than that, then we see the father, Israel, Jacob, go and... (laughs) doesn't speak up for her. Notice that the text, the narrator doesn't ever give one word to Dina. She is voicing. And what was Jacob's responsibility? It was to give her a voice and to defend her and to speak up for his daughter and to demand justice. But instead of demanding justice, what did Jacob do? He was complicit. And he went on with it. He's like, sir, we could do this. But if her brother can speak up and Jacob is just sitting there, limp, without any, any strength, and he covers it up. And so he was dehumanized. and shamed. And you and I have been dehumanized and shamed as well. I'll be honest here. I think one of the things about shame is it gets us to be real quiet about things. We never want to reveal what's going on and what has happened to us. At about four years old, I knew exactly where to find my dad's stack of magazines. And from there, I lived in dehumanizing shame for many, many years and continue at times to bear the weight of that. It caused spiraling addiction, objectifying people, people who were a daughter. Mother, a child. Those things are terrible. You see, we dehumanize them. We use people. You see, the brothers will also be complicit in it as well. They were deceiving. The apple who doesn't fall far from the tree. Jacob did the fever. There they are deceiving other people. So instead of being a good influence to the world. To show them a new way of being, they are acting just like the people who perpetrated against them. Think about the shame you and I feel. Think about all the hiding that maybe you're living in right now. You're afraid that if someone knew everything about you, what you do, and what has been done to you, you're afraid that you'll... It, And you know what you say? You're afraid that that no one will want you. And you say to yourself, I am damaged goods. I'm damaged goods. And you start to beat yourself down. And you go into the spiral of shame. And so what do we do? One is we need to confess our need for help. We need to confess that, that I am broken, that I need help. Next, we need to be a people who call out sin for what it is. We need to speak up for the voiceless, especially children. We as a people need to live a counter-narrative within our families and with each other and in the community to be a church that, that its most effective work will not be legislating by policy, but by living lives of real doctrine out into the world in order that we will show that there's a way to live sexual wholeness amongst a group of people It has experienced only brokenness. It means that we can create homes and communities of love and care where healing can happen. It is safe places where we can confess how we have contributed to the culture and the the culture has damaged us. It allows us to expose the things that that have allowed us to suffer shame. It allows us to confess our shame in order that we may regain the power over it. That's the kind of place we need to envision. It's the reason why we started the men's sexual wholeness group. So that we can have real healing. And we need it together. So how in the world can there be redemption for a place like this? For a bunch of misfits? For people who are... Damage goods. Immediately after the violent act, another violent act unfolds. And that's where we begin to, we start to read this, that, that Jacob is silent. Then we see the brothers come in with their indignation. They are burning with rage. Someone has got to pay. Someone's got to pay. Why? Because they... internally know and instinctually know, and you and I know that a person is valuable. That there needs to be some sort of exchange. There needs to be a redemption for her life. And it can't be just the bride price. Tretton knows that too. He's all like, I'll pay anything. I'll make this right. So the brothers... They, they, they try to do this then through revenge, so we see two ways. One, redemption is not by silence. It is not by living quietly and not telling anybody. It needs to go public. The narrator pur- purposely never discusses Jacob's reaction. He is silent and he doesn't speak up for her. It is to remind you that we are to be a people who speak out against injustice in the world. We need to be people who put money and give our time and our efforts to alleviate things such as sex trafficking, human trafficking. How do we start doing this? Well, for some of us, it, we need to come clean about our addictions. Some of us, other people, we need to give and ca- give give to uh, things such as like uh, um, you know, homeless ministries. We need to give to things like compassion. We need to give in order that we will, will be people who are not silent while this world is crumbling under the effects of consumerism and objectification of people. See, Jacob reflects that culture that he's in. He just wants to use Dina as a variable in his pain, pleasure, calculus. What does Jacob do? In the end, he reveals his hand. If they ain't come together, they're going to kill us. Jacob is more worried about his own skin than the skin that was violated on his daughter. Jacob was complicit. And it's a sad part of the story. We also know it's not by revenge. Jacob's son, if you read carefully, and, um, this is the benefit, I guess, of knowing original languages. It says, that, it says that Jacob's son came and they defiled, same word, the city in the same way that Dina was defiled by Seth. They did eye for an eye in their, in their understanding. They, got, they paid it back. They got revenge. And so we know that it is not by revenge. The brothers are defiling the town. They are robbing it of the value and dignity of the place. See, this is revenge that is purely punitive. Rather, justice is about making it right. It's about restoration. They're about making someone pay. See, a lot of this is similar. It should be familiar to us, this idea of revenge not justice, especially when we talk about lynching after the Civil War. There's something called the lost cause, when the righteous view the, the South, when there's a like, this is our cause and we lost it. Someone needs to pay for this, for our redemption. And so any slight, what they would do is they would take a person, of like someone who's, uh, They would bring them and parade them in public and then they would violently kill them. They would lynch them in the public eye in order to feel like they got their payback. They believed it redeemed their debt somehow that they were owed. And it needed to be public and in the sight of everybody. Now, that's just revenge. That's just defiling. But rather, what re- the way redemption comes is by justice, and, ju- and the reverse is this: this. It needs to be public, and it needs to be costly. Justice is public, and justice is costly. Instinctually, we know that someone must pay for this, for things to be made right. Shechem wants to pay a bride price, but how much is the image of God worth? How much is a person worth? You want to put a dollar sign on that? No. The brothers want to make them pay too. And so they just want to do the reverse of what they felt like was done to them. They want to make them pay. You see, rather what we need is to be known and to be loved. See, rather what we need to know is that this is public. It needs to be shown. And that all our faults need to be put out there at times. But then at the same time, we also need to be loved and restored. Because love always costs something. It will always sacrifice, the lover will always have to sacrifice something of themselves to give to the other. If you think about marriage, it works like this. That person walking down the aisle is not a perfect person. And in fact, that person walking down the aisle is going to offend you at some time. And do you know what is beautiful about marriage? Is that you'll stick with them even though that person will offend you. And in some way, you will absorb the debt onto yourself that that person owes you in order to stick in that marriage. That's what love looks. Sacrificing the giving of yourself so that you could be with that person. And so we need to be known and we need to be loved. It is as one one pastor says, to be known or to be loved and not known is superficial, but to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and fully loved is a lot like being loved by God. You see, there was another woman at a well in Shechem who went out because she was one of the women of the land. She had had five husbands and shows up at the well in John 4 and runs into her Redeemer. And Jesus meets her there and is not scared off by what she has done because He loves her and sees right through her. See, redemption, redemption for her, would only mean that she can be public and be loved. Notice what happens. She says, give me this living water in order that I may not have to come here again. She was so ashamed to come and she needed to go public with it that Jesus says, I am the living water. give me this living water. And then she brings it down and says, worship. It's like, hey, do I worship here or do I worship there? And Jesus says, there's a day coming when you will worship in the Spirit and Church. She's like, alright. I know that the Messiah is coming. Tell me who he is. And he's like, I am. And instead of consuming her with rage and just devouring her up in shame or causing her to hide, this innocuous thing is said. She left her jar. She would have to bring her jar to the middle of the day when she met Jesus. Why? Because she was ashamed. She was ashamed sexually of everything she had done. But Jesus made a beeline to her because He knew her and He loved her. And she runs into the town and tells everybody, come here, a man who's known everything I've ever done see them the silence, And they came to decide for themselves. You see, redemption does not come through complicit silence or hiding in shame. But it is only through love gone public on the cross. Your redemption and my redemption sexually can only come you're a man stripped naked, beaten, and put on a cross publicly for show. To show the death and the price and the cost for you and me. And He wasn't just a man, but He was the God-man. An infinite price to Himself, giving Himself for you. And all at once, undoing your shame, telling you that you are no longer unworthy, broken, damaged goods, but rather you are worthwhile and loved. You are wildly loved by the creator of the universe. You are seen and you are known. Jesus knew her, still associated with her. Jesus knows you. He still dies for you. You are not damaged goods. You are to die for let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, at this table, I pray that you would meet us and that we would know in the depth of our hearts that we are valued in love, in you, in Jesus Christ. And I pray that that would be the transforming work, that your word would get into our hearts, that we, your people, would be transformed for work and mission in this world, that we could no longer have to hide in shame about the brokenness of our sexuality, but we can find wholeness in the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to be healed, Lord. For those of us who struggle continually, day in and day out, whether being a perpetrator or a survivor, give us strength and give us grace, Lord. Rewrite our stories.